Let's pray. Father, your thoughts are above our thoughts. Your ways are above our ways. We do not truly comprehend the extent to which you understand things. And just even the reality that things that can be understood or the idea that we can understand things is only an idea or reality that exists because you determine that that is what reality is. You are way beyond us. Way beyond us. And even our greatest thoughts of you are nothing. Nothing compared to the true, real God that you are. You give us glimpses and you give us pieces and you tell us what you're like. But even in our understanding of those things, your love, your grace, your goodness, your kindness, your justice, your wrath, your vengeance, whatever it is, it's a, it's a glimpse into you, Father, but we just don't have a clue. And our entire life is dedicated now in Christ to knowing you more and more. And when we get to heaven, Lord, that will be an eternity of knowing more and more of you because you are infinite. And so to reveal more and more of yourself for eternity is only possible because there is no end to the constant and endless and infinite revelation of more and more of you. We don't have to wait for heaven. We get that now. Your word is inexhaustible. So we go to it knowing that there is more than enough for a lifetime of knowing you. Help us know you now. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We live in a culture, I think in a generation right now, a time that is probably, so I, I, I didn't live before 1982. So I don't know what it was like in the 70s. I don't know what it was like in the 1870s. I don't know what it was like in the 1400s or the thousands or whatever, or BC. So I have a very limited view on this. However, I will say I do, it does seem that right now we live in a time where everybody is offended by everything. Very easily offendable world and I don't want to speak into why everyone, I think everyone is so easily offended. But I will say this about being offensive. You have to be offensive. There's no other way to communicate. I'm not saying you have to intentionally find ways to offend people. Like, hmm, how can I really make that person not like me and offend them as much as possible? Not my point. My point is if you're going to have a real conversation with real people about real things... You have to risk offending people. It's just a part of life. If you're going to grow, if you're going to change, you're going to get offended. Your sensibilities, your perspective on what is true and whatever is going to be offended. That's the whole reason you come here. I'm not here to offend you. I'm here to tell you what God's word says and the hope is that he will convict you. So there's a difference between conviction and being offended being convicted is the Holy Spirit is teaching me truth. 
I must listen and live and do this truth that is being taught. Offended is, you're hurting my pride. Stop offending the way that I think. Offense is selfish. Unless you're perfectly holy, which is why we can offend a holy God. And it's not pride for him to feel that. So I say all that on purpose because... I think I'm going to offend you today. And I hope it's not offensive. I hope it's conviction. I pray, and I've prayed all week, that this would be so good for you, that you would receive this joy. And before I talk about the, the word, I want to lead into it with something more specific to us as a church. I think, that, I think that some of you, and I say some of you because I know, and when I say some of you, I don't mean all of you because I don't know if this is all of you. Well, I know it's not all of you because I hear some of the things that some of you say, and I hear some of the things that others of you say, so I know that it's at least some of you. Are having a hard time with the sermons lately? And... I hear you talk, you talk to me, I hear you say things to me, I hear you talk to each other, I hear what you're saying and the things that you're not saying, and I hear what is implied underneath what you say, and I also see your response in the way that you live your life. And as much as I'd like to say that it's my sermons that you're struggling with, or that it's Christian sermons that you're struggling with, I do not believe that it is me that you're struggling with. I believe it is the word that you're struggling with. I am definitely not a perfect preacher. I know that much. You know that much. But I am preaching the word. I'm saying what it says. And one of the difficult things about preaching the word is expositing the text, saying what the text means to say which means there's more inside of each verse than the verse itself tells us. So I know what verse 7 says because I know what Paul says in several other verses. So I know Paul's theology. I mean, I don't know it fully. Otherwise, I would know the whole word of God perfectly, and I don't. So I'm learning Paul's theology. I'm learning God just as, just as you are day by day and week by week. But, but in that verse, I see these certain words. And I could just read verse 17 and say, there's a sermon for today. That's it. I just read verse 7. Now we come back next week. We'll read verse 8 and we're done, with, we're done with that text. But the preacher's job is to take the text, unravel it, and reveal what's underneath it. Okay? And my agenda and my desire is to just say what the text says. And i got to be honest with you, I don't think that I say many controversial things. The most controversial things that I have said have essentially been about God's sovereignty. And we're in a Baptist church. <laughs> like, Baptists are historically known as believing God's sovereignty. It's not an odd thing to come to a Baptist church. I know we don't have the name Baptist in our church name anymore, but historically, we're Baptist. Okay. And so, I don't even think I'm saying controversial things. Over the last few months, it's been like, we're commanding you to obey. And I think that offends people. I really do. If 
commanding obedience isn't biblical, if that's too harsh for you, then I don't even know how to finish that sentence. If commanding obedience is not acceptable in the church, then, or it's not acceptable to you, then, I, then maybe Jesus just isn't for you. Maybe Christianity is not the religion for you. Maybe you've got to find a different one. And let me tell you, you think... Christianity is tough on obedience. There isn't another religion in the world that has grace. At least in our disobedience, there is grace that catches us before we fall into hell. I don't think I'm saying, I don't think I've been preaching anything controversial. And yet, I am getting feedback and I'm getting conversation that says this is too much. And if, and, and I think you feel that now's the time to like, okay, give us a breather, give us a break, give us some like ease. Could we do like a couple weeks of the Psalms? Oh, the Lord is good. Taste and see if the Lord is good. And you know, have a couple of nice weeks off of hard truths. And then we can hop back into the, the, the letters that are full of verse by verse, tough, heavy, deep, doctrinal, theological, uh, life-changing, altering commands. Then we'll get back to that. But I need a break from these hard truths and these hard texts. But the reality is that the Christian life is hard. There is no rest in this life. Hebrews 4.8 says, If there was rest in this life, then God would not have spoken of another day later on of rest. Sanctification is hard. The Christian life is supposed to be hard. And I don't even think your Christian life is hard. You guys are so... I, you guys, we, myself included... Is we are super comfortable. And be like, we really are. I hope, I hope that you are not feeling like, gosh, man, chill out. Stop being so offensive and so harsh and so hard. Stop ripping and ranting. Get off your soapbox about what the Christians in America are like today and, and what the Bible says we should be like. If I can't say that here, then there's no place for me in this world. So you don't get a break because the Bible doesn't give you a break. The Bible gives you rest in Christ and that rest in Christ is strength to continue to endure what is hard. I don't think we have a rough life. I was watching TV the other day and I saw that the Bucks, Bucks play game four, noon, after church on Sunday. I'm like, sweet, I got something to look forward to on Sunday. Like, that's the thought that went through my head. I mean, like, I obviously look forward to church, but I was like, I got something to look forward to after church, right? Woo! And immediately I'm struck with, is it sinful for me to enjoy a basketball game? No, not inherently. But I'm like, think about how comfortable my life is. 
That the hardest part of my day is, oh, what do I do? Do I go do this or do I go do that? Do I go out to eat at a restaurant? Do I go here and watch a basketball game? Do I, I mean, that, we live such easy, we don't have hard Christian lives. And I know that we talk about the apostles and the way they live their life and how hard their life was. And you hear preachers a lot. You've heard, uh, you've heard me say, you've heard Christian talk about it. We talk about, look at their life. It's marked with suffering and suffering and suffering. And you ought to be like them. And then you feel kind of either guilty or unsure if you're even saved because I don't die on crosses upside down like Peter. So I must not be saved. It's not what we're saying. But if you look in the Bible and you see the Christian life, there's, there's, there's no ease to it. There's joy. There's strength. There's encouragement to do what? To fight. To continue. To pursue. To not give up. To die every day. To die to self daily. That's the Christian life. We do not die to self daily. We give to self daily. We feed self daily. And I don't mean feed the word even. Just feed ourselves whatever we want. Do you wake up every morning and say, God, I don't know what you want me to do today, but I want it to be what you want me to do today. Feed me what you need me to have and then make me do what you need me to do. I don't care how hard it is. We don't pray like that. Or we pray like that in word, but we don't want that. And I don't think our, our, our Christian lives are really that hard, which is why when we preach the word and it all sounds so hard and so harsh, it's because we have found our comfortable rut in our Christian living that isn't biblical. So then the truth revealed to us on a Sunday morning feels harsh because we haven't seen the hard reality of Christian living Monday through Saturday because we're not in the Word. And we're not in the Word because the Word hasn't changed the way we live. The Word hasn't put us into situations that causes persecution. I know this is true because when I preach these truths, when I preach the Word, I get, this is, I'm not being a martyr to you, I'm not telling you that, oh, I'm being a martyr. I get persecuted all the time. All the time. This isn't about me. It's about the gospel. So this isn't about me. People attack what I say, attack what I preach. People attack me personally. People attack people that I'm discipling to tell them that the things your pastor saying is saying are not true. Don't listen to him. He's a liar and he doesn't love God. That's persecution. Does that hurt my feelings? A little bit. I'd really rather that person like me. And come to church here. <laughs> but they don't. They don't. They, and I mean multiple people, don't. Yeah, and why do I get that? And, that, and that's, that's nothing. No one's killing me for saying this. No one's murdering me. I'm not getting stoned to death. We don't live in that kind of culture right now. But wouldn't be surprised if it happens at some point. And so, because I'm saying and I don't even think these are hard things. I think they're just biblical truths because I say them, people hate them, and they attack me, or they attack us as a church, or they attack our ministries, or the things that we do. And they attack us verbally, and they attack us emotionally and spiritually, and those kinds of things are happening. 
Or it happens from within the church that the people who hear God's word preach to them go, I don't like that and I don't like that you say that. So, makes it hard to preach, but also makes it easy in a sense because I'm like, I, I don't want to preach my ideas. I don't want to preach my theology or my doctrine. I want to preach the word and what it says, it says, and that's all I want to say but I am to shepherd you too. Charles Spurgeon said preaching is a personal, passionate plea from God's word. That's personal. Your shepherd has a personal desire for you. I have my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own desires, my own passions. I know you individually, uniquely, and my desire and my responsibility is to preach the word of God to you, not to someone else, not to the American culture, to you. And because that's true, and because that's my call, we will not alleviate you from these truths. I'm not going to stop preaching them. There is no break. There's no pause. There's no rest. Your rest is in Christ. But we will comfort you through them. I will help you through them. We will, when I say we, I mean Christian, Pastor Christian, myself. Brian, Brian's a pastor too. I don't know if you knew that. He doesn't get paid, but he's a pastor because he's an elder, and elders biblically are pastors or shepherds. All elders are shepherds. We don't call Brian Pastor Brian. You can call Brian Pastor Brian if you want. It would be totally biblical. In fact, I'm going to do it. Hey, Pastor Brian. So <laughs> just, just a little side note. So you have pastors, shepherds who love you, and our responsibility is not just to say these hard things, but to shepherd you through them to love you, to comfort you, to help you through them, to serve you through them. As we are commanded to do, we want to love you through them. And if you don't believe me, I could name about 20 to 30 people in this church that I could point to right now and say, if you think I'm lying, stand up and tell these people I'm lying. And they won't. They'll say, I know he has. He's done it for me. He sat me down. He has told me a hard truth. I say he, they have sat me down. They have told me a hard truth. And they have loved me. Amen. It was hard. But they love me. And then they did not relent from loving me or keeping me accountable to those truths. And they're still loving me. And they're serving me and giving me. Are we doing it perfectly? No. Am I trying to praise us? No. I'm telling you that I'm not just saying hard truths. Now go do it. Good luck. See you next week. You better be better by next Sunday. <laughs> not at all. I'm saying these are hard truths. You have to do them. So do I. Hold me accountable. I'm going to hold you accountable. And if you want me to prove it, I'm calling you to my office on Tuesday because I love you. And I'm going to love you that way. And if I don't talk to you about those things that I see, that's not love, Hebrews 12. But we will not relent from telling you what God says your life should look like. To do so would be disobedient to God and would be a grave disservice to you. With that said, I say all that to prepare for you to pave a pathway for today's sermon. You can rest when you're with Jesus. That's Hebrews 4. For now, we fight, we push, we struggle, we toil, we endure, we fight, and we finish the race, and we finish strong. And as we'll see today, only his disciples will survive. So here's my encouragement to you, because that sounds harsh. 
That sounds condemning. So here's my encouragement to you from Jesus in John 15, 8. Prove to be his disciples. That's the call. So we're in Colossians 2, 7. Paul writes, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So he starts with this word rooted, and I think a better translation of the Greek word for rooted is having been rooted. It's implied there in the way that the verb is formed, but it means having been rooted. It's it's a participle, which is like a a verb that acts like a noun, modifying a noun. And so the perfect, it's it's in a perfect, it's a perfect, sorry. (laughs) There's a lot of P words in here, okay, sorry. It's a perfect participle. In the perfect tense of the participle means that the action is done, it's complete, it's been done. So Paul is not telling us to go get rooted. He's talking to believers. The action is done. You have already been rooted. And so he's, used, he's given us a metaphor of plants, like a seed that gets planted. And it says as it's planted, it gets rooted. If we are a seed, that Christ is the soil. And we have already been planted in the soil. We are in Christ. And according to Jesus in Luke 8, 8, what happens to a seed when it gets planted in good soil? Do we all agree that Jesus is good soil? Amen? Amen. Okay, so what happens to a seed when it gets planted in good soil? It grows. And it yields fruit. In fact, Jesus doesn't say it yields fruit. It yields some fruit. A lot of verses talk about threefold, sevenfold, tenfold. That's a lot. You know what Jesus says happens to a seed that's planted in him? Hundredfold. His point isn't to say, not 101. I don't give that much good. His point is the same point he makes to Peter when Peter asks, how many times should I forgive? And he says, seven, 70 times 7. His point isn't 490. His point is endlessly. What's the fruit of being planted in Christ? Endless fruit. There is no stoppage to the amount of fruit that can be produced in the seed that is planted in Christ because he is a resource that is infinitely good. So there's an infinite amount of goodness that can come out of your life by being in Christ. The only way that seed grows is if its its roots extend down deeper into the soil just as we are to grow down deeper into Christ, knowing him more and experiencing him more and desiring him more and going deeper to find greater nutrients and, and more moisture to enhance the production of fruit above ground. All of that fruit is only possible when we have healthy, deep, and growing roots. And healthy, deep, growing roots is only possible in good soil or in Christ. So we have already been rooted in Christ. That's Paul's point, which means he's talking to believers, which means he's talking about justification. That idea of rooted is a reference to justification. You have been rooted. You have been justified by faith. And after telling us that we have been justified, or what he calls rooted, Paul then shifts our attention from justification to what happens immediately when we're justified, the beginning of a process called sanctification. So he shifts from justification in the word rooted, and then goes to sanctification in verse 7 when he says, built up. So rooted, justified, and built up, sanctification. Now the word rooted, being in that perfect tense, is important since it tells us that getting rooted was an action that was performed upon us, not an action that we ourselves performed. So our justification 
or what we call our salvation, was not an act that we performed. That's what the Greek is telling us. But there was an act that was performed upon us, which Scripture clarifies in hundreds of verses. If you want those verses, I have them. Okay, there was a girl I talked to this week. We're talking about all these verses. I showed her on my phone. I said, look, I got hundreds of texts that tell you this thing. And she's like, text it to me. So I text her hundreds of verses. Now she's got them all. And there's way more than the ones I have. I'm telling you, if you want verses that talk about the sovereignty of God and his elective purposes and his will, just talk to me. We can look at them together. I can just give them to you and we can talk about them. I'd love to have that kind of conversation. But there is a specific text that is abundantly clear about how this word rooted is in the perfect tense, revealing that it is God alone who's performing this act of rooting us. It's an act that we are not participating in to begin with. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So, he chose us before the foundation of the world. The world, before the world was made, before you did good or bad, Romans 9, before Jacob or Esau did good or bad, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He chose Jacob, not Esau. Is it because Jacob was good and Esau was bad? No, actually it was before either of them did anything good or bad. In fact, Esau morally was better than Jacob. So it's not about who's done what. And if your response to that is, well, yeah, God chose us because he knew we would choose him. Here's my challenge for you. One verse. Show me one verse in the Bible that says that. One verse. And I know the verses that you're probably thinking of if you have that verse. And I do believe I have an answer for them. That's not the point right now, but I want to just squash that reality and just see the text for what it is. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, what, why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. How? Why? For what purpose? According to the purpose of his will. Not according to the purpose of your decision, but of his sovereign will. There isn't a single word in that text that indicates that we chose to be saved, but only that our salvation is the product of God's elective purposes or the purpose of his will. Now, that is important to understand as we see Paul's usage of metaphors here because the plant metaphor, when he says rooted, he's using a metaphor about plants, about the seed and the soil and being rooted, and that is God's act alone. Rooting us is something God does. Faith to believe that justification is an act done upon us. We are given faith as a gift, and we believe the regeneration of our hearts was done to us. Faith is given to his elect, and with that regenerated heart comes the gift of faith with which we believe and are justified by faith. Once that takes place, we begin a lifelong process called sanctification. So after being rooted, Paul shifts to our sanctification. In doing so, he also shifts metaphors. The pl a plant cannot plant itself, just like a sinner cannot save themselves. But then he shifts to building. A builder can build a building just like a believer can work out their sanctification and their salvation and grow in Christ. That is something we can do. It's still God's work. 
we see through many texts that I've shared over the last few weeks. It's still God's work, but we can build a house. We can build our faith in Christ. Jesus uses the same metaphor in Matthew 7, 24, the metaphor of our responsibility in our sanctification, the metaphor of building something. In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We all heard this before, right? You heard this as a kid. If you had any time in church as a child, you've heard this. This is such a common metaphor. It's in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's repeated all the time. It's put in children's songs. Everyone knows this. So what does this verse have to do with sanctification? Here's Jesus' point. Our sanctification is all about obedience. Our sanctification is all about obedience. I could take the word obedience out and say belief or faith because belief and faith are interchangeable. I could say belief because belief produces obedience. You can't obey if you don't believe it. Hebrews 11.6 And if you believe the word, you will obey it. If you don't obey it, it means you didn't believe that thing. So, You could say belief, but belief is something that takes place in our head and in our heart. Obedience is the acting out of that belief. So obedience is the way in which we actually produce the sanctifying work in our life. So sanctification is all about obedience. No, 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 no. It's about trusting God. Trusting God is obedience because he says to trust him. No, no, no. It's about having more faith. Faith or believing God is obedience because he says to believe him. No, it's about loving Jesus. Loving Jesus is obedience because he says to love him. No, it's about glorifying God. Glorifying God is obedience because he says to glorify him. Do you see what I'm doing here? You could take anything that the Bible tells us to do or be about, and your sanctification boils down to whether you do it or not. Sanctification is all about obedience. And I'll show you that that's true from Jesus' metaphor of the house on the rock. You've likely heard this metaphor before, right? The house, the rock, and Jesus summarized, and Jesus tells us about it. But I think what we've done in the church over the years, at least in my life, since 1982, when I was born, till today, I've heard this, this metaphor paraphrased. It's paraphrased, and, and how is it paraphrased? It paraphrased in... One of a couple of ways, and I think there's one particular way it's paraphrased most commonly, it's usually something like build your house on the rock. Or a wise man builds his house on the rock. And I know that because I hear that all the time. So here's what happened. I wrote this sermon, I wrote this part of the sermon on Friday at work during the day. I scheduled or I uh, called a restaurant to make reservations for a date for my wife and I. So my wife and I went on a date together Friday night. And this part of the sermon was already done and written. I was already thinking about it. My wife asked me while we're on our date, how how, how you feel about the, the message for Sunday? How you feel about your sermon, whatever? I said, I got a question for you. And I tried to give her as few words as possible so that my words were not influencing how she summarized this, this metaphor that Jesus shares. I said, you know the, the Bible verse that Jesus shares about the, the, the guy, the house, rock, sand? That's, that's like all I gave her. Because I didn't want to give her words to like formulate it. I said, she's like, yeah, of course, I know what you're talking about. And I said, just summarize it for me. What's it about? Basically, what's the point? And she goes, a wise man builds his house on the rock. I said, exactly. I knew you'd say that, and I wrote it down before you even said it, 
Because I know everyone says that. And then she starts singing at a restaurant. <laughs> she goes, a wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man, you guys know that song, right? We sang that as kids. We take this truth and we summarize it down to a wise man builds his house upon the rock. It does say that, but that's not the point of Jesus' metaphor. Our summary has left out the heart of what he was saying. We've all summarized it down to a wise man built his house on the rock. What puts his house on a rock? What makes this man wise? Jesus tells us in his metaphor, everyone then who hears these words of mine and what does them? That's the wise man. That's the man whose house is on a rock. The wise man is the obedient man. He hears the word and does it. But what if, I, what if, what if you don't obey? Matthew 7, 26, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The only difference between the fool and the wise man is obedience. Well, what about hearing? It says that we can hear it in the metaphor that Jesus is sharing. Both the wise man and the fool hear him. Right? The wise man, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them, the only difference is what the wise man does them and the fool does not. That's the only difference. The difference is obedience. What makes a wise man build his house on a rock? An obedient man builds his house on the rock. Which tells me that there's a lot of people who can hear the truth and not do it. And Jesus says they are a foolish man who builds their house on sand. Which means being at church, though that in and of itself is an act of obedience, is not sufficient for building your house on the rock. Just hearing the word isn't enough. James says, don't just be hearers, but doers of the word. I would imagine James got that from his brother, Jesus. The only difference between sanctification and false conversion is obedience. Let that sink in for a second. The only difference between sanctification and false conversion is obedience. Those who do the word are those who build something firm upon a solid foundation. And those who do not do the word, who disobey the commands of scripture, are those who also will be unable to withstand. Now pause. I'm about to give you a list. That the person who does not obey the word, who Jesus says is a foolish man who builds his house in the sand, your house is on sand, and it cannot withstand certain storms. And I'm going to give you a list of those things that you can't withstand if you don't do the word because your house is on sand. And this list is specific because Paul will say that this list is very specific to our verse today. So here's the list. If you do not do the word, you will not be able to withstand heresy, False teaching, misleading philosophies, conspiracies, human traditions, and the manipulative work of demons. Only those who obey can withstand that storm from the enemy because those who obey, back to the plant metaphor, have deep roots. 
or to the building metaphor, a solid foundation that makes them unshakable in joy against suffering, hardship, heresy, false teaching, conspiracy, human traditions, and, believe it or not, the true teaching of the Word of God. Hold on, Pastor Mark, that doesn't make sense. We're supposed to obey the Word so we can withstand all these bad things like heresies and conspiracies and false teaching, but also so we can withstand the Word of God? Isn't that a good thing? Why do we have to withstand the Word of God? What I mean is that with a firm foundation, with deep roots in Christ, the Word of God becomes to you like fresh rain to your deep roots, or like hardened nails to keep the two-by-fours together in the house of sanctification that you're building. It solidifies and strengthens our spiritual growth. But when our foundation is sand and our roots are not deep or planted in Christ, which Jesus says means we're not doing the word, then the word of God, when taught truthfully, will become to you like a storm that rips your plant from the ground and tears your house down. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of God is folly to those who are perishing. Or the word of God is like a storm to those who are fools. Who are the fools? Those who do not do the word, according to Jesus. Hard truths, guys, right? I understand the feeling. You know, I would much rather go back to chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 and be like, let's talk about the supremacy of Jesus, how beautiful and glorious he is, how wonderful he is. Let's, just, let's do John three sixteen and just talk about how Jesus loves us so much. You know what? I couldn't preach John three sixteen without telling you how God sovereignly works through our salvation in John 3.16. It's all over scripture. These hard truths are laced all throughout the Bible. The problem is we don't talk about them because they're hard and we love comfort. And you know what? Comfortable sermons and comfortable messages don't put butts in seats. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that word. I was once told by a pastor not to use that word in a sermon. I think that's the first time I've ever used it. But it felt right, so I'm sticking to it. You guys know my heart, right? Okay. So, so my point is, I, I know this, this, like, there's no in between here. Jesus doesn't paint this like, you know, um, you know, like there's the wise man and then there's the fool. And the wise man's the believer and the fool's the unbeliever and you're one or the other. And we go, well, I'm a believer, so I'm the wise man. But you don't do the word. But what, what if you say you're a believer, but you don't do the word? Then What? My point here is not to condemn you. My agenda is not to tell you, you don't do the word, Grace Church. That's not my point. My whole point is to encourage you with the reality that Christians, we are supposed to do the word. Let's be wise people who build our house on a firm foundation. You're hearing the word. Let's do it. Jesus says that's wise. Let's build our house on a firm foundation. Let's be in the word. Let's read the word. Let's study the word. I was thinking about how much time I spend in the word this week. And I'm not going to tell you how much time I spend in the word a week. But I'm, I, I think about, that made me think about how much time you spend the, in the word in a week. And I'm thinking to myself... I, to evaluate each person individually would just be too much. But 
it's got to be more. I mean, it's literally my job to spend time in the Word, and I block out entire chunks of my day to do so. I know you don't get to do that when you're selling spacely sprockets or whatever, okay? Reference for everyone born before 1990. So, my point is, you don't get to spend as much time in the Word as we do, but I challenge you to spend more time in the Word than me and Christian get to, because it's our job. I challenge you. Like, I don't know what your life is like, but I do know that we are making decisions, and and, and I know it sounds like I'm coming down on you. I'm actually trying to help you see something more clearly we have really been inundated and indoctrinated with a mentality and a perspective about the way we live our lives in this American culture. It's not America's fault. It's our fault. We're the sinners. I'm not blaming the culture. But Paul's purpose for this list of these are the things that you need to stand against, heresy, false teaching, misleading philosophies, conspiracies, human traditions, and the manipulative work of, the de- of demons, those are all, all of that stuff is the stuff that we spend our time on. And we don't see it as bad. I was listening to a sermon by John Piper this week, and his point was, it's not bad things that draw us away from the word or away from prayer. It's good things, family, job, friends. That's the stuff that keeps us from praying and from being in the word. They're not evil. And he even went on to say, Satan is the one who's Who's telling you, yeah, go spend time with your family? Well, Satan wouldn't tell me to do something good. It is good to spend time with your family. But don't pray. Don't read. We are just tricked into thinking that all these things we're spending our time on and our energy on are good for us. Like, there's, like, I'm trying not to like, I want to be succinct. If every second of the rest of your life was dedicated fully and totally and 100% to being in the word and preaching the word and sharing the word and reading the word and praying to God and you only breaks you took were to sleep because you can go to the bathroom, drink water and eat while you're still praying and doing the word. So you do all that. For the rest of your life. And the only break you get is to close your eyes so your brain can rest so that it can be regenerated and download the information you just got for 18 hours while you were awake so you can wake up and start it right away again. That's the Christian life. You could say that that's insane and ridiculous. I have to eat. I have to find a way to make, to, to buy the food. So I need a job. And so I also need to like love my wife or my husband and take care of my children. I mean, they need time for all these things. Okay, fine. How much time does it take you to work? Block out that chunk. How much time does it take you to take care of your family? Block out that chunk. And is taking care of your family include preaching the word and teaching the word to your family? Praying with your family? Well, I need to do, and then what else is on your list of things that you have to do in order to do what I just said is the Christian life? To literally eat, sleep, drink, and be awake for the word of God, and that's it. 
And if I told you every second of your day that isn't dedicated to your job that gets you the food so you can stay alive so you can be in the word and take care of the people and the things you have to take care of every minute and moment and hour in between those things was dedicated to the word of God you would say that's ridiculous why why is that ridiculous why is that weird why is that unachievable why aren't we like that why don't we think that's the standard and I'm not there yet but I want to get there. What, why is that crazy? Like if I told you that instead of watching this basketball game, I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend three hours in the Word and I'm not going to watch this game because I don't care about that game. I mean, I really do, actually. <laughs> but I'm going to not care because I need the Word more. You'd say, dude, relax a little bit and enjoy life. Why? My enjoyment, the Bible tells me my joy is in Christ. So if I want to enjoy life, I need more. I need more of this. Why isn't that our mentality? I need more of this, more of him, more of the word. You've got to relax a little bit and kick back and enjoy some things. I would argue that the Bible doesn't even tell you to do that. I would argue that there's no kicking back and relaxing. I would argue that you go home after church and you spend more time in the Word with your family and you pray with your family. And after lunch, you sit down with your family and you spend more time in the Word. I know that you'd be like, whoa, dude, whoa. That's a whole day of being in the Word. I got projects I got to take care of around the house. Okay, take care of your projects. And when you're done, spend time in the Word and with your family. And I get it. Like, I sound like a crazy guy. This is nuts. I know that that's not going to happen for you today. I get that. My point isn't that you should do that when you get home today and that's the only way that you're obedient. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying why isn't that the norm that we are pursuing? Why does giving up things in life to be in the word, to be with God, to be in prayer. Why is that abnormal to Christians? I don't get it. I take it back. I get it. Because I do it. I do it. The things I'm saying to you, you don't know how hard it is to preach the word of God. Are you kidding me? I was standing there right before I came up here. And I was doing, I don't know, I guess it must have been doing some weird gestures. or like. All I remember thinking and feeling was, oh my gosh, I don't want to go preach. Holly rubs my back. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, no. <laughs> I, you know why? I don't do it. I don't do it. I'm, tell, I'm telling you what you have to do, and I don't do it. The greatest times that I've had this week have been with Pastor Christian as we've sat in our offices and shared with each other the insane depths of each other's sin. And we haven't even scratched the surface. The rabbit holes of the deep, deep, dark caves of our sin that we have talked to each other about. And we're going, oh my goodness. Are we even equipped for ministry? And Christian goes, no. <laughs> We were joking, of course. Like, you know what? You know what he did say? He goes, that is why these conversations need to happen. That, that's why we need to be aware of how deep this sin is, how sinful we really are. 
so that we are constantly putting sin in check by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ and relying on his grace to overcome our sin and to encourage us and to move us forward toward sanctification. That has to be done. So I'm aware, I'm aware that the things I say are hard to do because it's hard for me to do. I'm aware that you don't want to hear it. Hey, I don't want to preach it. My ego loves, would love to have a thousand people in my church. Oh, my ego would feel so good. My pride would just be like, Mark, you're so good. You must be loved by so much. That's what my ego wants. I have to fight that all the time. I have to beat that back with a stick. And that stick is the word of God. And if I don't spend time on the word of God, I will become an egocentric, selfish pastor who softens up on the word to say all the things that gets lots of butts in our seats. I can't. Because God's like, Mark, Read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. And the more that I do, the more that I do, the greater my conviction, the stronger my conviction, the more he's like, tell my people to obey me. When did obedience become such a strange thing to Christians? Like literally the gospel has become to Christianity, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for your sins and rose from the grave and you're saved. Done. Now live the life you lived before. Except don't do the obvious things like don't drink, smoke, and chew, and date girls that do. <laughs> yeah. I didn't make it up. <laughs> it was told to me a long, long time ago. Right? That's the Christian life. Get saved. Live your normal life. Don't do the big things. Don't get drunk. Don't party. Don't, you know, cheat. Don't, don't, do, those, don't do those things. Just, just but, but, you know... Try to be a good person and grow, you know, and go to church when you can and, you know, whatever. That's the Christian life. And then when you die, you go to heaven. We have this assurance through the power of the gospel that I go to heaven. When did we skip an entire lifetime of dying to yourself every day? And going, waking up every morning going, God, reach into the depths of my soul and and dig into my mind and my heart, reveal to me the severity and the putrid, disgusting nature of the true Mark, the true, whatever your name is, my true self, and, and, and reach in and, and, and rip it out of my soul. And I know, God, that the means by which you do that is by convicting me of your word and, and giving me the power, which is the strength of the joy in the Lord that I have to Fight those sins every day, which is why we have to make war with sin, which is why we have to hate our sin, which is why we have to know what sin is, and we won't know what sin is if we're not in the word. And you won't know how much you're supposed to hate that sin if you're not in the word. You don't get saved by obeying, you get saved by grace and faith. And that grace and faith becomes a means by which you can obey. Why do we have to obey? So you can be a light to people who will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So that you can prove to be disciples of Jesus Christ. I don't think telling you to obey the Bible every day of your life constantly. I don't think that telling you to spend every waking moment in the word of God constantly. I don't think that telling you to pray without ceasing is unbiblical. 
It's in the Bible. That's not strange. What's strange is would be if I think if Paul walked into our church or into any church in America really and said, "This is your Christian culture. Nobody's praying, nobody's reading, nobody's studying, and nobody's obeying." There's a huge emphasis on grace in your Christian culture. That's all I see. It makes me think people don't understand what grace really is. I think that would be Paul's perspective. When I read his letters, that's what I see. I am going to stop now. And I am going to save the next three pages for, not next week, but the week after. But I just want to show you one quick thing. What is the goal of our sanctification? The goal of our sanctification is to grow. Our aim and our goal in sanctification is expressed clearly in Ephesians 4.13. Paul writes, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our aim. The mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the full maturity of Jesus Christ. That's our aim. That's why I said last week, I know you're not going to be perfect, but our agenda is to pursue perfection. Why do we need to get to this level of maturity? Why, does, why do we need to get to the stature of the fullness of Christ? Why does that need to be our aim and our goal? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's why I told you that list was important. That's why we need to mature. So that we can stand against the waves or the storms of false doctrine, human craftiness, and the deceitful schemes of Satan that show up in heresy and conspiracies and politics and and all kinds of goofy doctrines and false teachings. That's why we need to be deeply rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. And I know that's Paul's agenda in Colossians 2 because next week's text that Christian's going to preach says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's what we fight against. And that battle gets stronger the more we preach the truth. And I could give you specific examples of how what I'm saying is true in this church and in my life and in our lives specifically from the last two weeks. That from the word that is preached here at Grace Church, we have been or, or, or faced empty deceit, human traditions, and the elemental spirits of the world that are not according to Christ as an argument against what is taught at this pulpit. You know what that tells me? It tells me, ah, that means the rest of my week's going to be easy. No. That tells me we've got a war on our hands. Not with people, Ephesians 6, with the enemy. The people are blinded by the enemy. They need to see the truth. We love them by sharing the truth. 
and we defeat and fight the enemy by sharing the truth with them. And we do it also by being in the word so that we know what is deceit and what is empty and what is human traditions and craftiness and empty deceit and philosophies and conspiracies and what's false teaching and what's true teaching, what's heresy and what's the gospel. We have to know what that is and so that we can fight this battle. So I look forward to this week and I don't go, yay, it's going to be a nice easy week because I don't have to preach next Sunday. Pastor Christian's going to preach. I get kind of the week off from preaching. So I'm going to have kind of like a lackadaisical easy, easy week. There's no way. We're at war. We're at war with the enemy and we are at war with our sin. This week will not be easier. You don't get rest. This tells me that I have to fight. This tells me, we think about scripture and I told you that I want to encourage you. So I want to encourage you with this. Scripture never tells you that the encouragement for the believer is, hey, you got God, you got saved, take it easy. It's never talked about like that. You know what the Bible tells us over and over again? Endure, suffer with joy, fight the good fight, discipline yourselves, beat your body, run the race, act like men, be strong, gird up your loins, pray without ceasing, know the word, read the word, and finish strong. That's the Christian life. That is a life of endurance. That is a hard life. That's a life without rest. Your rest is in Christ. Your rest is the joy you get from the strength you get of having Christ. Now I could talk about rest another day. And there are ways to rest well. But this fight does not end for us. And we go into battle without a sword. Every day. You are given the words of God to fight these battles. You are given prayer as the Spirit. You were given the spirit of God and prayer, communication with God and the word of God. And we go into these battles every day. An enemy doesn't attack us at all because he has already laced a layer of deceit around us because we're in a comfortable Christian bubble that we think is salvation when maybe it's not. I don't know. And we live this life thinking, oh, my life is fine and dandy and there's really not a whole lot of hard things going on in my life. And then this tiny little thing pokes its head and we go, oh, that's suffering. And it's not. It's usually, let's be honest, it is for me, self-induced suffering. And then we, 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 we were blinded to the reality of what we should be living because the enemy has covered our face and he is manipulating us and we aren't seeing the truth because we're not grounded in the word. We're not rooted and built up and established in the faith by the word of God and in prayer because we don't have the mentality that every waking moment should be devoted to Jesus Christ. And because it's not, we think hey, he should get five minutes of my day or half an hour of my day at most. And man, he gets a whole, like, two hours on Sunday. Woo! That's a lot of God, man, in a week. So, you know, I've done my duty. And the enemy goes, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly, that, that is, that is a lot. Oh, Pastor Christian shared for an extra 30 seconds this morning. Oh, it's too much word on a Sunday morning. Too much word? We, we're doing this on purpose. We're doing it on purpose. I'm, I, my entire agenda for you is to ingrain in your brain that you need this thing more than you need food and water. Because it's true. Jesus said that's true. So I'm going to give you as much of it as possible. If you don't like it, if you don't want it, if it's too much... I think the end of that sentence is self-explanatory.
I love you. <laughs> like, I love you. I want, I want to rip the blinders off your eyes and say, the word of God is telling you that the Christian life that you live is not the Christian life that you think it is. That the Christian life in, in the word is way different. And let me tell you, the things that you're holding on to so tightly, like the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, that doesn't get, that does not get lost in the biblical life. It gets, it gets glorious. It expands and it explodes and it becomes your living breath and the blood in your veins. The grace of God for people who rely only on the grace of God with no obedience are missing out on the grace of God. I'm telling you, there's so much more for us. And, we're, and we, we don't want it. And I know you don't want it because I don't even want it. I, I'm sitting up here preaching. I'm going, ah, now i got to do it this week. I'm telling these people how to live their life. And now i got to go do it. And I'm going to be held accountable to this. And ah, I have to. And it's going to be hard. And every week it's going to get harder, I think, because it should get harder. Because every week it should be stretched to grow. This week should be harder than last week. And next week should be harder than this week. And we should go deeper. It should be more difficult. And it should be more painful. And you should love it, even though you hate it. Because suffering hurts and pain hurts. But it produces, Hebrews 12, righteousness. And you should love that. Where is our devotion to God? To the word of God. To, To giving up everything in our life to be with him and for him and like him and in him. And in his word and in prayer, where's the mentality that a life filled that way is the pursuit, pursuit that I'm after? Instead, it's just other things. We think, well, we're supposed to enjoy this life. The joy of this life is Jesus Christ. That's all there is for you. Joy in Christ. Joy in Christ in loving my wife. Joy in Christ in teaching and loving and raising my children. Joy in Christ in loving you. Joy in Christ in preaching the word to you. Joy in Christ in being in the word. Joy in Christ in prayer. Joy in Christ in eating when I eat. Joy in Christ in drinking when I drink. Joy in Christ in sleeping while I sleep. Those are the things I want to do. So when you invite me to go sledding or fishing or golfing, I'm going to say yes. Because I love you, and I love golf. (laughs) Of course, I'm going to say yes. Why? Because my joy is in Jesus. I want to love you during golf. I'm not saying you can't enjoy all these things in life or do this. I I get it, guys. Like, if if you're saying, my point is, where's the perspective? Because we look at that life and go, that's crazy. That That attitude right there, that's crazy. That that life is crazy. Paul would say, crazy? So you're telling me I'm crazy because that was my life. And then he writes in his letters, do what I did. So that life that he lived, that he tells us, we have to live. That's our aim. It's not, it's not that I'm telling you you're not obeying, you're not good, you don't do enough, you don't read your Bible enough, you're not obedient enough, you're not blah, 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 blah. blah. That's not my point. My point is not that you guys aren't good enough. That you're not doing enough or whatever. My point is, it's an attitude problem. That we look at that kind of insanely radical Christian life and go, oh, that's for the birds, man. That's not, you know, the Christian life is supposed to be that hard. Or I'll get there when I'm 80. One day at a time. You've got to pick up your sword. 
You got to gird up your loins. You got to put on the armor every morning. Wake up, fight the fight, die to self, murder your sin. And not you murdering your sin, but go to Jesus, fall at the feet of the cross, and, and sit before the empty grave and say, These sins you have already killed. Now show me that redemption. Give me the power of the gospel to live the Christian life today. Show me all the ways I got to fight this sin. Show me all my sins. Reveal my sins. Let me battle these sins. Let me fight these sins. Give me the strength to do it and give me joy to do it. Increase my joy in the gospel that has saved me from hell and let me live out in my life today a radical Christian, Pauline, Christ-like life. That should be your prayer every morning. We don't. I know that sounds harsh, but that is how I love you. Then, and if you feel like there's no encouragement in that, man, are you not hearing the gospel? Are you not hearing that the gospel is the only means by which you can do any of that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I love you so much. You, Father, must forgive me for the ways in which I do not love these people well or lead them well or preach to them well or teach well. You have to forgive me and you have to correct me and you have to show us your truth. And I, and I, and I know that the way you'll do it is by putting them in your word where they will see the truth. And then we can grow together. Humble us before your word. Help us to live a life that honors you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.